0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards.
1: Welcome to East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. This is episode one. I'm Nick Batzig. I'll be your host this morning as we enter in this show. And I'm sitting down here with Dr. Craig Beale, who is the author of the Reformed Academic Press publication, The Infinite Merit of Christ, The Glory of Christ's Obedience, and the Theology of Jonathan Edwards. Dr. Beale is also the author of a forthcoming title published by Solid Ground called Reading Religious Affections, a study of to Edwards Classic. Uh, Craig, it's good to have you on the show this morning.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you.
1: We're also sitting down with Reverend David Filson, who is the teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. David is a PhD student in historical and theological studies at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, and he is visiting professor at RTS Charlotte, where he teaches a course on Jonathan Edwards titled Jonathan and Java. David, it's great to have you on the show this morning. Good to be with you all. And a familiar to our other podcast here on the Reform Forum, Reverend Jeffrey C. Waddington, teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringoes, New Jersey. Jeff is a PhD student at Westminster, Philadelphia. And his dissertation is on Jonathan Edwards' Theological, Anthropology, and Apologetic Practice. Jeff, it's great to have you on the show this morning. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm the only guy of this group that has not done any substantial academic work on Edwards, but I am a student of Edwards and love his theology and am honored to be here with these guys this morning. I thought we'd take a few minutes just to talk about the purpose of this podcast, Jeff and David and I had talked uh, months ago about doing a show on the Theology of Edwards and thought Craig would be a great fit to be a panelist on the show with us. Jonathan Edwards is quite possibly the greatest theologian in the history of the church, at least in North America. He is the greatest Christian theologian in this country's history. And there's so much so much theology in Edwards that we can learn from. We want to focus on the theology of Edwards and his sermons and his his treatises and his discourses, and specifically looking at his biblical theology, Edwards' use of redemptive history, and how he integrates that really into a lot of his expositions and a lot of his discourses, and also his systematic theology and how um, Edwards holds those two things together so beautifully when he's expositing scripture and, um, and expounding on scripture. So this morning we want to come and look at the first of Edwards' sermons that we're going to consider in this show, and it is called, as the name of the show ought to intimate, East of Eden. It was Edwards' sermon on Genesis 324. It's found in Volume 17 of the Yale edition. Edwards preached this sermon in the summer of 1731, and I know that you can find this online as well. But we want to just introduce this subject this morning. Um, David, maybe I'll turn it over to you to walk us into the introduction of this sermon, East of Eden.
3: Sure. Well, the, the Genesis, I know pun intended here for even starting here with this theme of the biblical theology of Edwards, actually happened over a cheesesteak up in Philly. Jeff, you remember they, that? When we were? Yes, I do. <laughs> when we met, and um, I had written uh, a paper on Jonathan Edwards' um, redemptive historical hermeneutic and had done that for a course uh, at Westminster and then had presented it at ETS. and. Uh, Jeff was kind enough to give it a look and thought maybe there were some some things we could do here. And then the idea of the podcast came up. And then, Nick, of course, you suggested East of Eden as a, as a good sermon uh, with which to begin. And it really is. Um, it's interesting that this sermon, y- you see it near the beginning of Edward's ministry, not at the very beginning, but near the beginning of his ministry. Uh, later in his ministry, of course, once he is... Uh, about to be called to the College of New Jersey presidency, he talks about uh, his desire to expand and work on his um, history of the work of redemption, which you would, you know, obviously recognize as a redemptive historical uh, piece of of work. But this sermon from 1731 uh, shows all those, you know, marks, all of those uh, signposts of uh, of an R.H. Hermeneutic, right. Um, And and it's interesting, one of the things that if you look in the Yale edition, volume 17, uh, Mark Valerie's editorial introduction, um, he draws a connection between the East of Eden sermon, uh, at least thematically, with some of the themes in God Glorified and Man's Dependence. And it's interesting that uh, while we know East of Eden was preached in the summer of 31, uh, we know more specifically that God Glorified was preached on July 8th of 1731. And so you know, it's kind of obvious why there would be some some thematic similarities between those two sermons because they are preached probably within within weeks of one another.
1: Right, and you really see in this sermon, I know we'll touch on this as we go through the Adam-Christ parallel, that Jesus is the second Adam who who undoes everything that Adam does and who does everything Adam failed to do for us. And Craig, your work, your dissertation on Christ meriting righteousness for us, that that's really at the center of edwards' biblical theology is the adam christ parallel
2: yeah the adam christ parallel is indeed a central framework within all of edwards' theology his his theology is a tight tightly knit tapestry where everything is interrelated everything is related to each other you can't mess with one aspect of his theology without without affecting the greater scope of his theology and everything rooted in edwards' theology back to the intra Trinitarian relationships of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit reflected outwardly the Trinity ad extra in the redemptive work of Christ to display God's glory, His excellence. And that is done in and through the person and redeeming work of Christ in accomplishing what Adam was unable to accomplish in his trial in the garden, which was the trial of obedience to honor God's justice, honor God's authority. Uh, Adam failed in that, and by God's gracious design, the Father's design, by the uh, voluntary acquiescence of the Son, out of love for the elect, to whom were given to Christ by the Father as a bride, Christ willingly undertook to do what Adam was unable to do in, in accomplishing redemption. So he would he would fulfill the righteous requirements of God's justice, both in the positive requirement of perfect obedience and subsequent to Adam's fall in taking care of the negative requirement of satisfying the infinite debt and paying the infinite penalty for our sin. So it's very, very central, uh, the Adam-Christ framework, because it reflects all the way back to God's point and purpose in creating the universe, in bringing Christ into the world, and ultimately in the culmination of all things where we rejoice in viewing God's excellence forever as it was displayed primarily uh, in and through the person and redeeming work of Christ.
1: And what I found interesting about this sermon in particular is that Edwards does kind of run the span in the history of redemption from Adam to Christ and the benefits of Christ, almost bookends of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. He'll end up talking about the tree of life and Christ opening the way to the tree of life and us having access to the tree of life based on the, the... conditioned obedience of Jesus, that he fulfilled the conditions for us, and now we have free access. And as he starts in this sermon, Edwards really focuses on the awful effects of Adam's sin and the nature of what was going on in the garden, what Adam gave up, what was going on even psychologically. And Edwards opens this sermon by saying, this chapter is the most sorrowful and melancholy chapter that we have in the whole bible speaking of genesis 3 and it's really masterful if you think about that that he is he is so fixated on what adam forfeited and what happened and that that complete 180 from what the world had been at creation He goes through here and talks about in the second paragraph, he says, our first parents were not contented with the honor and happiness that they, as mere man had, they had a mind to be like God, and Satan promised them knowing good and evil. They knew what good was before the fall, but they did not know what evil was. Interesting there, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, Jeff or or David, about this, but he really goes, he really expounds... What was happening with the tree of the knowledge of good and right. evil and Adam's
0: experience? Uh, just a couple of things that you might, we might want to note is there are two things that, that man lost, right, according to Edwards here. Uh, and I find this fascinating. Two things he lost. One is the goodness and the happiness and the holiness that, was pre- that they possessed in the garden. But they also lost the promised confirmation in righteousness that would have been theirs had Adam been obedient to God, uh, and and so, uh, and that's interesting for many reasons. But one is, it's Voss who is credited with the expression "eschatology precedes soteriology." You're familiar with that expression? Mm-hmm. Okay yes. that that's that's credited usually to Gerhardus Voss, but we have it right here. In Jonathan Edwards' sermon, which predates Voss by two hundred years,
3: yeah, Jeff is actually the. It's uh, that statement can be found on Voss's The Pauline Eschatology on That's page right. three twenty-five. Very good. Eschatology dates redemption, and this sermon is, uh, is a is a fine example of eschatology yeah. dating uh, redemption. And um, the thing that I'm, you know. Really taken by, and this, I think, touches on some of what you were saying, uh, Craig, with regard to the justice of God. This is a very tightly woven sermon uh, from the very beginning, almost I mean, it's sort of a literary masterpiece. If you read it carefully, uh, all the way, Nick, from you know the way you brought out uh, that this is the, you know, the gloomiest chapter, uh, the most sorrowful, melancholy chapter that we have in the whole Bible. He doesn't just say that and let that go. A few pages later, he shows why it's such a melancholy chapter and shows how the fall wreaks epistemological, ecological, and, and ethical havoc. Right. You know, th- there's that sort of three-pronged implication of the fall for epistemology, ecology, and, and ethics. And so that's why it's such a gloomy, a gloomy thing. And, and, Jeff, as you're saying, what man has lost. But all of that is setting us up for how Christ is going to uh, eschatologically restore all of those things right. that have been lost. And... To me, probably the thing that makes this so tightly woven and interesting from a literary standpoint is uh, obviously the imagery of the tree of life, and he takes that all throughout and how Christ is restoring us to that and ultimately is the fulfillment of the tree of life. But particularly, Craig, as you mentioned, the justice of God, and he uses the imagery of the flaming sword uh, as that symbol of of God's justice. And he, he emphasizes over and again that that flaming sword is swinging every which way. So as to prevent man from any which way he might, in his own righteousness, seek to reenter, and he's almost setting us. Well, he's not almost; he is setting us up at the beginning for this sort of um, redemptive historical payoff at the end of the sermon, right? With that sword imagery, which is the justice of God, to show how Jesus took that sword upon Himself, right? You know, it's just a just a model, I think, of Rh preaching.
1: Yeah, unless somebody say, "Well, that's fanciful," um, you know, the Bible doesn't ever say that. Well, it does say that. In Zechariah, it says, "Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the one who is my companion." And there's a great old Baptist hymn called, "O Christ, What Burdens Bowed Thy Head." And there's a verse in there: Jehovah bade His sword awake, O Christ, it woke against Thee. And the verse ends by saying, now sleeps that sword for me, that he goes through the flaming sword, that that is the prophetic stepping stone from Eden through Zechariah to what happens at Calvary. And so Edwards is really tying together the whole biblical uh, story, even with that imagery, like you're saying, Dave, from the beginning in in Genesis
0: 2 and 3, really. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. the, as David has already said, the sermon—and uh, this is true in much of what Edwards uh, preached and what he wrote—there's uh, an aesthetic beauty uh, in the sermon. Uh, I don't think uh, we, you know, we can say that it's too tightly uh, wound, but it, it's uh, beautifully done, and it does—it does require a, a, a broad and deep familiarity with the the scriptures. Uh, mm-hmm something may look to a reader as being uh, extrapolating from the text with not there, uh, but if you, if you understand the whole sweep of redemptive history, uh, you'll understand that, that this is not a filling in of the holes, if you will, it, but it's actually uh, a keeping in mind uh, both the immediate context of Genesis 3 and the fall, the temptation, right? The probation and the fall. And, but it also is dealing with the resolution to that, but also keeping in mind the progressive nature of re- special revelation. Uh, Edwards, as you know, was big into typology, and this sermon is a good illustration of that, and we've already mentioned the flaming sword, uh, and, and Edwards himself would not want to say that he's guilty of a reader response hermeneutic. He would argue that it was God's intent for the Son of God to undergo the flaming sword for us. And of course, that we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's what comes at the end of the message. But one of the things I wanted to, to, to note is that just as one of the things Edwards says that may be unique to him And that is that we get more than what Adam would have gotten had he been obedient. In other words, the the fact we get a greater view of the mercy and the love of God because of the extent to which God the Son, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the extent to which uh, they went in order to achieve redemption, That opens up to us a vista that we would not have had Adam been obedient in the garden. Right. So there's, there's that added element. There's not only Adam and Eve in the garden are living in a state of innocency, uh, and they, they are holy, righteous, and knowledgeable, uh, to use the language of Ephesians and Colossians in the new Testament, uh, but they hadn't yet achieved a uh, confirmed righteousness. They, it was possible, as we know, for them to fall, because they did. But also, we've got that al- added element that, that Edwards uh, gives us of the uh, what I sometimes refer to as the um, f- Felix Culpa, or the, the, the happy fall. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact is right. that, that in God's plan, we get more... Uh, because Adam fell and the Son of God became incarnate and, and lived a holy life and died for, uh, died for our sins, uh, we get more because of that. Now, there's, there's a whole lot that's, that's a tightly woven uh, theology that we could take a long time to unpack, but that's clearly uh, evident in this sermon.
1: Well, yeah, and I, I think too, and Craig, you've pointed this out in your book, um, really the substance of your book in, ma- in many respects is that the, the idea of the covenant of works and covenant of grace really structure Edwards' theology and his biblical theology. And even here on page 332 of um, the Yale edition of the sermon, Edwards will say, if man had stood and had not eaten of the forbidden fruit and had kept the law, he was to have eat of the tree of life and so to live forever. And that's a hotly debated issue in our day, whether there was such a right. thing as a covenant of works and what Adam would have gotten had he obeyed. Would he have stayed in the condition he was in? Um, you know, elsewhere, and I think it's in notes on scripture, Edwards will actually say, he'll surmise, and it's speculative, but he's trying to answer the questions that guys that object today to the covenant of works will raise and say, well, Adam – was never told he couldn't eat of the tree of life. And, and Edwards will actually say he believed that the tree of life did not yet produce fruit, but had Adam passed the test with regard to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life would have then produced the fruit sacramentally as it were. Um, and Adam would have had that as a reward. And he says so much here in the sermon. He says that if man had stood out his time of trial which was to be as long as divine wisdom should determine. He was then, after that due time, to have eaten of the tree of life as a seal of his reward. And, Craig, I'm just wondering, how important do you think that aspect is to not just this sermon, but Edwards' theology in general, the idea of Adam and the covenant of works and the reward upon obedience?
2: Well, it's very important. In fact, Edwards makes the comment that God doesn't deal with any of his creatures but by a covenant of works. For instance he he views the angels as having been under a covenant of works, and that the fallen angels having failed, the unfallen angels were confirmed in their holiness um, and you know unable to change their status uh, subsequent to the the fall of the uh, fallen angels so it's it's very, very important. God, in his infinite wisdom, has dis- so designed. Uh, creation and his relationship with his people, that they would not be confirmed in eternal bliss apart from having shown honor to his authority and to his commandments and to his to his character. So um, it's very very important. And to get the covenant of works wrong, in a sense, is to put the entire gospel into jeopardy. According to Edwards, because for Edwards, the entire uh, edifice of the gospel stands on God's justice, and if God's justice requires absolute perfection, perfect obedience, then there's only one possible way that can be met, which is through the second Adam's perfect obedience and satisfaction of the requirements, positive and negative, of God's justice. So, it's I I, I don't think sometimes theologians understand how important that that is. To the nature of the gospel, but but for Edwards, he certainly did understand it, and attributed many of the errors of the Armenians and others to a improper understanding of the nature of God's justice from the start, which is reflected in the covenant of works.
3: Two key covenant of works, uh, you know, references in Edwards to back up what Craig is saying, and I mean there are many, obviously, uh, throughout sermons and treatises and whatnot. But you know, so often we overlook miscellanies, um, you know, sometimes because we just don't have access to them. You know, for folks maybe who have um, access to the Hickman edition, there are miscellanies in there, but maybe they don't have access to the fuller uh, collection of miscellanies that are in the Yale uh, edition of the works of Edwards, Uh, but two key miscellanies on the Covenant of Works that that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt Edwards held to that is Miscellany 30, which is in the uh, Yale Edition, Volume Thirteen, Page Two Seventeen. It's a little lengthier, so I won't take time to read it. But uh, also, Miscellany Three Sixty Seven in Yale Thirteen Four Thirty Eight, where I mean, he couldn't be clearer than this. Uh, Edward says, "For Christ only fulfilled the covenant of works for us and performed that obedience which Christ should have or which Adam should have performed."
0: Right, that's yeah, quite and, clear. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, and to add to that, undergirding even Edwards' view of the covenant of works which is that relationship with his creatures whereby they, you know, they obey and they they give honor to his justice is what Edwards calls the uh, unchanging rule of righteousness, which is, um, which is in effect always and forever, which is that all, all creatures, owe God, perfection at all times. So even if the covenant of works being, um, you know, Adam Adam failed, Christ fulfilled it, um, even if the terms have been, the, the the requirement of God's unchanging rule of righteousness hasn't been changed, even if the terms of the covenant of works are different given the fact that Adam was unable to meet those terms, the unchanging rule of righteousness doesn't go away because it's reflective of God's God's character itself. Therefore, in effect, the... The, re- the requirements of the covenant of works never go away. Right. Even though the fact that it could never be met by a human being who's fallen uh, may have changed our relationship to it, the requirements behind it never change because it's that, rooted in God's character.
0: Right. And that's why I think it was John Gerstner who said, the covenant of grace is a covenant of grace for us because it was a covenant of works for Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because that Christ fulfills the covenant of works, obeys it, and, and that uh, we are able to, by God's grace, uh, be saved. Now, Dave, um,
1: the the body of this sermon, interestingly, is really focused on um, man's misery, the curse. Really, I think you mentioned this earlier, it's really focused on what Adam lost. I think that's the first doctrine of the sermon. When man fell, God drove him away from all his former blessedness. And then um, when we fell, we've so incurred God's displeasure that there's no hope of our ever attaining, obtaining eternal life um, in that way that it was to be obtained um, in that condition with Adam. And reading the sermon, Edwards is trying to make you feel how miserable the fall is, that it's not just a paragraph or two. It's page after page after page of Edwards talking about what all was lost and the miserable condition of man. Do you want to talk just a little bit about that and why that, again, elaborate on why that's important?
3: Well, I think it's important, obviously, uh, theologically, because you know when we speak of the fall of man, we can become rather glib with that. And Edwards is wanting to sort of pull the curtain back and force us to take a good hard look at the fall, and he does this, I think, very artfully, uh, very effectively uh, in in his description. Again, as I said earlier, I think he's showing not just uh, epistemological implications of the fall, but uh, ecological, you know, implications. He's he's wanting to look at the cosmological implications of of the fall uh, of man on on the earth and on. You know, even the atmosphere. You know, he he talks about how prior to the fall, there there were no uh, noxious odors and that sort of thing in the uh, in the atmosphere. But then ethical implications as as well. I think he's doing this near the middle of the um, of the sermon again because of what he's doing to set us up for how Christ restores all of those things. But he's also doing it not just to show the depth of and, and, and the um, despair of the fall, but he's doing it to contrast it with the infinite holiness of God. Uh, he's painting this picture of the fall and the implications of sin uh, as dark as they are because he's wanting to make the point that because God is infinitely holy, uh, he has an infinite abhorrence of sin. Um, and, and because of that, that relationship uh, that once existed between God and man can exist now. Uh, because of because of the fall, and the fact that, that the anger of God is the anger uh, of an of an enemy with an enemy, and the anger of a, of a righteous judge, as as he says. So it's all to um, to serve both the purpose of showing the sinfulness of sin and really the the holiness of God and the juxtaposition that only Christ can can span.
1: And you really see Edwards, uh, in the words of Piper, his God-centeredness, you know, his, his picture of an infinite God here on page 341, when talking about God's anger, he says, God's anger towards man after the fall was the resentment of an affronted infinite majesty, that this God is not some... Um, loose canon, as it were, but that he loves himself and his glory and his majesty and his honor and glory and majesty have been um, debased in man's sin, as it were. That man is um, man's sin is an affront to that majesty. He says, "Our sin was what <clears throat> cast contempt upon God's majesty, God and His holy and sacred authority and infinite majesty. In the eating of the forbidden fruit, was set below the gratification of the taste and man's desire of his own honor." God will surely vindicate his own majesty that greatness of his which is thought so light and made so little of God will show to be great in the punishment of such contempt and that's that seems to me to be just a enormous um, element in all of Edwards' theology, not just the sermon. Jeff, you and I have talked about the idea of the infinite in Edwards and just how much that's really building on Anselm, right? As
0: you were uh, quoting there, it's it's very clear that Edwards is in the uh, tradition of a Saint Anselm. You know, Anselm said, if you think that God could, you know, lightly dismiss the sinfulness of man, then you haven't seriously enough considered the sinfulness of sin. Uh, and the sinful, and the infinite nature of sin is related to the the absolutely righteous and holy character of God. Right? It, it's not merely the the uh, the internal workings of the human heart and the outward actions that flow from that. Although Edwards, as you know, is a master of describing that in original sin. He goes into some detail about describing the the nature of the the temptation and then the fall of Adam in the garden. Uh, but we're dealing with the nature of who God is, the yeah. obedience that is owed to God by nature of who He is. And that's really going to enhance
1: the gospel and who Christ yes. is and what He did. I know, Craig, even as your title, The Infinite Merit of Christ, but Edwards is everywhere, pointing to... Christ as the infinitely loved one, I think it's in um, the wisdom of God displayed to the angels where he'll say, why did it have to be the second person of the Godhead who satisfied the wrath of God? Because God's wrath is infinite. It had to be a being of infinite value, and it had to be the blood of one who was himself infinite and eternal. And that just seems, that seems to me in reading Edwards and reading this sermon, but reading all of Edwards, one of the most foundational things in all of his theology.
2: No, absolutely. He, he sees God's glory, God's excellence, as central to a proper theology and everything flowing out from the person and the excellent character of God. And for him to not be indignant towards that which affronts his infinite excellence would, be, would not be excellent in and of itself and would not reflect his glory, because his, his glory, His excellence requires that He be indignant, that He be hateful towards that which is contrary to that which was infinitely the best, which is His character. And as Edwards says, with respect to that, if He was ever to not act in a way that was consistent with His excellence, He would no longer be God. So,
0: mm, right.
3: Just for me personally, maybe the most striking passage in the sermon, and it's on 341 of the Yell edition. Um, But he says the holiness of God would render him as a consuming fire to such a filthy creature if he presumed to approach to take of the fruit of the tree of life. Mm. And because of God's character, that requires him to be um, that way toward fallen man. And so in a sense, you know, Edwards makes much of, you know, our first parents being being punished when they were taken out of the garden and the sword swinging every which way. But their being taken away from the tree of life was, in a certain sense, as much protection as anything else. Because had they taken of that tree of life, God would have been to them a consuming fire. And then, related to his, his infinite holiness, Edwards immediately says in the next uh, sentence, there could be no way that man could obtain eternal life by anything he could do, unless he could do something or offer something that was not due from him to God, that merited his love and favor much as his sin had his abhorrence. And so there needed to be something that would equally merit God's love and favor as much as sin had infinitely provoked his abhorrence. And again, that could only be Christ. And so the nature of God's holiness necessitates an infinite Christ. Right.
0: Anselm talked about, uh, this is my language, but Anselm talked about the double bind, right? There is the fact that by nature, we as creatures, and Adam especially, so owed to God, perfect, absolute. Uh, the use of the Westminster Standard talks about, the language of the Westminster Standard talks about personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. That requirement, which is related to the unchanging rule of righteousness, never goes away, but now you have the defect, Right you not only have the the standing expectation of of perfect obedience, but you also now have the fact that man uh, is in a deficit situation. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And again, this is all related to God's holy character, and of course this uh, prepares the way or sets us up for an understanding of Christ's person and work. So there's there's a, a... A coherence to to the teaching of God's Word that we sometimes miss in all the detail.
1: I find it interesting in the sermon that as Edwards kind of moves out of that doctrinal section where he's really explaining the inner workings of Adam and the covenant of works, the curse, the fall, the loss of blessedness, God's justice, God's anger, God's righteous response, and even as you said, Dave, his protecting man from his own wrath by not letting him try to take of the tree of life. It's Mm -hmm. not until he comes to the application of the sermon that he really brings the gospel in, and Mm -hmm. the application is almost a recapitulation of the sermon of what he's just said in the doctrinal section leading up to the gospel, and it's really not until almost a quarter of the way through the application that he says the gospel doesn't merely offer to us such an opportunity as Adam had before the fall. We have the same offer here made to us as Adam would have had after he should have finished his obedience. But then he basically goes on to say, but now Christ has fulfilled that obedience for us, has made way to the tree of life. He says, Christ himself now stands instead of that tree of life that grew in the midst of the Garden of Eden. It's Christ that is meant by the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God, Revelation two seven, And we are immediately invited and called to Christ to eat of the fruit of this tree without any sort of terms. Now, clearly, Edwards is going to believe there's evangelical conditions, faith and mm-hmm. repentance, but he's talking about legally, there are no terms, but only to come and take and eat. And it's, it's really a very evangelistic sermon in that way that he is he is calling men in in now setting forth what what Christ has accomplished he is calling them to come and take and to eat of the tree to show them that the way to paradise is open it's beautiful um, the way that he does that Um, and then he talks about the blessings of the gospel Uh, he says forth the tidings of the gospel are very joyful because the eternal blessedness itself that is offered is in many respects greater than, than what was offered in the first covenant. And they're going back to what we've already said that he then contrasts the, the greatness of the blessings we have in Christ with what we lost in Adam. And even with what Adam would have gotten on his own, how much even better to have Christ fulfilling those things. Thoughts on that?
3: You know, he, he's answering himself, Nick, I think in the application section. I think Edwards is answering himself um, in the earlier part of the sermon. He is in describing what man has lost, describing the, what I said was kind of the, the, the three-pronged implications of the fall, epistemological, ecological, and ethical. In the application section, he's answering all of those things with the gospel. So he's really set us up beautifully, um, you know, beautifully for that and one of the things and we've you know brought this up a time or two and jeff uh, you know expounded on it was really how much better an adam and how much richer an adam the second adam is for us than the first adam would have been or, or could have been and when we get to this application section and we're talking about the glad tidings of the gospel and and the blessedness restored to us and you have this this imagery of our of our heavenly reward one of the things that i love about Edward's theology of heaven, and it ties in perfectly with what he's saying here in this in this sermon. And um, it's found in several several places, you know, primarily a, some some sermons and some miscellanies. But is his notion of <clears throat> the blessedness to which we are restored is an ever expanding, ever enhancing blessedness? He says in Miscellany four thirty five, which is in uh, Yale thirteen page four eighty three. Uh, Edward says. But when the saints are got to heaven, there is yet another great change yet behind. There is yet another state, which is that fixed and ultimate and most perfect state, which the whole general assembly, both in heaven and earth, are designed for. They are still progressive, not but that I believe saints will be progressive in knowledge and happiness to all eternity. Hmm. And so the richness of our eternal union with Christ, the second Adam, it doesn't just mean that we have richer blessing in Christ and that's a good thing and and, uh, there's sort of a a quantifiable um, richness to that. It's an ever-expanding, ever-progressive blessedness and knowledge and happiness that we grow in. And I I remember uh, several years ago I was uh, giving um, I was at a conference out in Arizona. I was giving a lecture on Edward's Doctrine of Heaven. And um, I was one of the um, the workshop speakers and one of the, the plenary speakers for this conference was Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, who is just a saint of the Lord, uh, as we all know, and has dealt for most of her life with, uh, with physical struggles, obviously paralysis, et cetera. And I'll never forget when I was giving the lecture on Edwards and talking about this ever expansive blessedness, she had, uh, motored herself into the room and I talked about this and I'll never forget her, just throwing her head back, and with what movement she could manage, she just said, oh, David, tell me it's true, tell me it's true.
1: Uh-huh.
3: Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she longs for that, right? But, it, but it's held out to all of us, this notion of ever-expanding growth and blessedness and happiness because sin is taken away, uh, the breach in relationship with God is taken away, and we are in union with this uh,
1: ultra-rich second Adam, it's interesting to me, just as we come to the close of looking at this sermon, how Edwards does spend a good portion of time talking about those very things and and wanting to stir the hearts of men to desire the access to the tree of life that we have in Jesus and to desire the eternal life that he has merited for us. But he ends, actually, on a note where he actually focuses on why men won't come to Christ. He says men are exceedingly apt to seek eternal life through their own righteousness. And he'll expound on this idea of men are, are by nature because they're in Adam and because of the fall and because of their own corrupt nature and because of them wanting to put themselves under the covenant of works. They're apt to try to enter back to the tree of life, as it were, in their own strength. At one point he says a being saved by another's righteousness is a thing that men naturally can have no conception of the propriety of. They are ignorant of God's righteousness, can't see how they can be saved any other way. They have no faith. They haven't been taught by the Spirit of God. They think right in thinking that it must be by righteousness, and they, being not enlightened, can't see any other righteousness but their own. And he he really ends the sermon not on this high point of the Gospel, which this this sermon in particular has some amazing gospel climaxes but he ends it by saying a consideration of the doctrine will teach us how vain all such attempts are let those therefore that are going about to seek the fruit of the tree of life consider that if they continue so to do they will never be able to attain it and not only so but will be slain by the flaming sword of God's vengeance which I think is a a fascinating way for him to end this sermon having gone from the covenant of works to the covenant of grace from Adam to Christ, and then saying, but look, you know, as glorious and as beautiful as this blessed state in Christ is, the sad reality is so many are actually going to be slain by the sword of justice because they won't come to the Christ who went through those swords for us. A flaming sword still exists. In other words,
0: right? Right. It's a sober reminder that uh, there's only one way. And that is through, uh, the uh, person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we will undergo the sword ourselves, right?
1: That's right. Any last thoughts about developments, taking this sermon, looking at Edwards' theology, and ways that the biblical (laughs) theology in specific could be developed out anymore?
0: Just one observation, more more than an analysis, and that is that if we're looking for a contemporary, uh, perhaps... uh, fuller development of some of the themes that occur in this sermon by Edwards. Uh, the new book by Greg Beal, not to be confused with our good brother Craig Beal, uh, the New Testament Biblical Theology uh, really fills out a lot of the details in in uh, what Edwards is doing here. That's not his intent. Uh, but the covenant theology that Edwards is explicating here is dealt with. Uh, Greg Beal for instance deals very in in a fair bit of detail on the implicit promise of confirmed righteousness right. that's that's in the covenant of works uh he he unfolds from genesis 3 forward actually from genesis 1 forward uh how that is actually a biblical notion that we don't merely have the ex- the uh the prohibition but we actually have an implicit promise, and he, he unpacks that. So if you're interested in, in further development of that particular line of thought, Greg Beale's New Testament and biblical theology is one place to look. And you'll see that it's not merely an interest of Edwards and so therefore antiquarian, but it's a contemporary concern in biblical studies. You know, Nick, one of
3: the things that struck me as I was making my way through the sermon was things just kept reminding me of of Voss and, you know, so many of those little quips and quotations that we all love out of Voss. Um, from a from a biblical theological perspective, this sermon's a model of that. Um, but as we talked about the idea of the richer blessedness that, that we have and how, um, you know, access to the tree of life, Christ fulfilling that, and uh, not just a return to blessedness, but a greater blessedness, it reminds me of what Voss said in the eschatology of the Old Testament, and this is on pages 73 and 74. He says that very succinctly, the universe as created was only a beginning, the meaning of which was not perpetuation but attainment. Hmm. And so, the goal in the garden was not the perpetuation of what was going on in the garden, it was something higher. Hmm. The garden was a trial, and so there was something higher, something more blessed that was yet to be attained. And when Jeff was noting a minute ago, a minute or two ago, uh, of how this sermon really assumes a lot of biblical knowledge on the part of the hearer or the reader, it, it dawns on me from a pastoral perspective, uh, Edwards felt comfortable preaching this sermon right. without a whole lot of explanation and caveats, and meaning <laughs> what what is it about his congregation or time that he could preach such a sermon, and I'm assuming that he assumed they had the, the the biblical theological grid to navigate this sermon. And you, you asked in terms of implications and applications for us, I think uh, we need to think carefully about getting our flocks there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, right. and I think also just in helping our people read uh, the Bible as an organic whole, you know, in that Vossian kind of approach to Scripture— which I think Edwards is clearly doing, when you read the Old Testament... There are so many little allusions to the east gate of the temple, or Judah, the tribe from which our Lord came, being at the east in the book of Numbers, um, Ezekiel chapter 44 to 48, and that picture of the heavenly sanctuary that Beal is going to obviously develop in his works, um, Jeff, like you mentioned, right. and the prince going through the east gate and opening that way back up. I think all of that has to be tied back to the garden and what Adam lost and what Christ does for us. And so even getting getting these truths and getting the whole um, uh, imagery from Genesis 3 is helpful in understanding what the rest of the scripture is preparing us for in the Old Testament. I kind of wish Edwards had developed that a little more. I know he does uh, do a number of those kind of obse- observations in the miscellanies and in notes on scripture, but um, on the whole, this was an exceedingly helpful sermon. And I want to encourage our listeners, if they've never read it, take a day and read it. It'll only take about an hour and a half to read it, and it's very edifying and mentally and spiritually rewarding. We hope that you'll tune in again. Good day.